Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 230, recorded for the week of October 4th, 2023. If I ever own a sailboat, I will name it Kafka and sail it on a data lake. That was good. Yeah, that was a that was a ad lib at the end there. Just threw it in for the fun of it. <laughs> uh, how's it going, Ryan and Matt? How's it? Uh, how's the week? We're halfway through. Halfway Only there. half. <laughs> I know. I earlier today, my staff meeting is always on Wednesdays, and either I have extended staff or I have uh, my my direct staff uh, every other Wednesday, and they alternate. And uh, it popped up my calendar this morning, and there it was like staff, and I was like. Today's Thursday, though. <laughs> I, was, I was very sad about it. Uh, and then I realized it was only Wednesday and I cried a little bit, which is actually good because I'm totally gone tomorrow. So I've been mm-hmm. awkward that I was working on the day off. So that yeah. would have sucked. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, first up, some general news, uh, which kind of leads into some stories we didn't really talk about about a month ago that uh, I thought we should maybe circle back to because it's uh, sort of relevant to this article. So uh, Microsoft is warning of a cyber attack attempting to breach cloud via SQL Server instances. Uh, This is an urgent warning from them that if you're running SQL Server on top of a Azure VM, that the attacker they're seeing is initially exploiting a SQL injection vulnerability in your app and then uh, taking that access and uh, using it to access elevated permissions on your Microsoft SQL instance deployed on top of an Azure VM. And the threat actor will then attempt to move horizontally by abusing the server's cloud identity, which could possess elevated permissions if you don't follow at least privilege. Uh, Microsoft says it's found no evidence the attacker successfully has moved uh, horizontally across there, but they are seeing uh, articles about this, which is kind of nice that they just gave this proactive piece of information and said, hey, this is something you should be aware of in your apps. And it's a potential attack vector that if you not follow best practices, you're totally owned, which uh, compared to the criticism laid out by not only senators, uh, but also the Tenable CEO about a month ago who threw them under the bus hardcore for not fixing a major vulnerability for over 90 days. Uh, this warning and confirmation seems like a better direction. Uh, so for those of you who weren't aware of this article, there was a uh, uh, senator who basically called out Microsoft, Senator Rod Wyden. I think we talked about this on the show, actually, uh, that, they were, that Microsoft's being negligent with their cybersecurity practices. And then basically a bunch of people piled onto it. And we didn't really cover that, but... The CEO of Tenable uh, had a whole article he posted to LinkedIn where he basically said, it's much, much worse than you realize. Uh, and he goes on to talk about this vulnerability they discovered. They disclosed it right away. They identified that this vulnerability was impacting a bank. They were able to see a bank's uh, API data. And then, you know, basically 90 days later, Microsoft said they didn't have a fix for it yet. They had a partial fix. Uh, and then, you know, they didn't, wouldn't have a permanent fix for 120 days. And so that's absolutely unacceptable. Uh, and when you hear Microsoft, just trust us, don't trust them. So is this a step in the right direction uh, based on that scrutiny, or do you think this is still not enough? I mean, I think that it's always in the details, right? Like the, I, the, the reaction to the previous thing, I, I don't know what the vulnerability was, and I don't know how complicated it was to fix. And so it's, um, you know, all of these observations are made outside of that context. You can say, like, you know, 120 days is unacceptable, but if you don't have an answer and you don't know how to fix it, you don't know how to fix it. Well, and if it's major architecture work to fix it, or you have to then fix it and then migrate customers to a new pattern, and that's very expensive, like those things take time and coordination. And how do you do it in a least disruptive way? And how do you not cause a bunch of pain for your customers? Like it's, 
it's a big deal. You know, the question that they mentioned is, you know, did that bank even know there was a vulnerability? I mean, I would hope that under NDA that that bank was reached out to and said, you know, this is a potential risk. But, um, you know, disclosure laws are kind of weak. You don't have to disclose a lot of things unless you're publicly traded and that it's material impact to your business. Uh, so you know, it would be good to see better guidelines around when do you need to disclose, who do you need to disclose to and stuff. But then I also don't want the federal government to make those decisions for me. So yeah. <laughs> it's always yeah. a one, two punch there. You're like, ah, someone's got to play mom, but mm, <laughs> can it be someone, not the federal government? I mean, also just the scale of these hypervisors. Sometimes it just takes time. Like you don't want to quickly roll out a hot fix to something realize you caused another problem and now you're playing whack-a-mole because you're moving too fast and not taking a step back and fixing the root cause of it. You know, and with however some of regions they have and zones and they state that they don't roll out fixes in, you know, zones in corresponding regions at the same time. So just there easily probably takes them a couple a couple days to a couple of weeks to roll out a hot fix. So it's highly plausible, you know, if they said from 90 days, they might have been able to fix it in 90, but take them 30 days to roll stuff out. I don't really want the hyperscalers to say, cool, we're just going to go do this thing and take down their whole cloud. It's going to end bad for me. It's bad for terrible for them. And everyone's having a bad day at that point just because they tried to jump the gun a little bit. So maybe there's more behind the original story. I'm not saying that it's the right thing. 90 days feels like a reasonable time to be able to roll out a hotfix. But like you guys said, who knows? Maybe it was a major underlying architectural thing they had to pivot. Yeah. Well, I do think that, you know, the the reaction time and the, the communication on this, you know, attempted breach, I think is really good. And, you know, I always encourage transparency. And um, I think it's this one's a little easier for Microsoft since it's, you know, the it starts from a you know an application level um, vulnerability, and then it's stopped by the, in this case anyway the the infrastructure layers. So that, you know it's it's a little bit of a good press that they're taking advantage of. Yeah. But I think that you know the more we talk about these things openly, the more that we discuss them as you know industry professionals, the more we can you know stop doing star policies for permissions just because it's hard or taking shortcuts in, in our coding so that you know it's easy easier to in, take advantage of SQL injections and the more you know attention we'll get to putting in DevSecOps processes into our build pipelines. All right, let's move on to AWS news for the week. Amazon Bedrock is now generally available to allow you to build and scale generative AI applications with foundational models. This may be one of the fastest GAs ever at AWS, as uh, <laughs> they definitely wanted to be uh, seen as leading in the space. Bedrock uh, is a fully managed service that offers a choice of high-performing foundational models from a leading AI companies, including AI21 Labs, Anthropic, Cohere, Stability AI, and Amazon themselves, along with a broad set of capabilities to build generative AI applications, simplifying the development while maintaining privacy and security. In addition to Bedrock being available, they are also pleased to say that Llama 2, 13B, and 7DB models will be available as well on Bedrock very soon. Uh, and they do say Bedrock is serverless, and so you don't have to manage any infrastructure, and you can securely integrate and deploy generative AI tech capabilities into your applications using the AWS services that you're already familiar with. Uh, I played with it, and uh, I have some feedback. <laughs> First of all, uh, if you are going to use this, I definitely, definitely recommend on-demand pricing, because provision throughput was crazy town. 
<laughs> I was just, I was just curious what it would cost, and so I said, you know, purchase it. And I picked, you know, just one of the Amazon models because I, I knew the Claude one was expensive. And I said, hey, just give me 10 model units for one month. Uh, and uh, that price uh, was scary. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was $46,000 a month for. Wow. You know, I don't know what a, a model unit is. I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I didn't have time to really research it. But even one model unit, which is the lowest amount, is $4,600. Now. If you say, look, I really want the Anthropic Claude 2 model, which is supposed to be all the hotness, and I want the model 100, you know, K model context length, and I want one of those for just one month, it's $45,000. Oh, pocket change. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, that was a little scary, um, which <laughs> made me playing with it very nerve wracking. So, <laughs> there's a couple of things uh, about the Bedrock system for those of you who haven't clicked into it. Uh, first thing you do when you go into Bedrock, you have to enable the models you want access to. And as I mentioned earlier, there's the AI21 Labs, which is a funny name to me because I was like, it's very close to um, AL21, which is sort of Amazon's R&D group uh, you know, or whatever that group is called. That's sort of weird. I don't think it's them. I think it's, it's a different group, but very similar name. And then Amazon's Titan uh, Embedded G1 Text and Titan Text G1 Express, which I can't get into because I, it's a preview and it has to be rolled into. And then I can get into Claude get into cohere and i can get into stability ai for stable diffusion and so you had to check which of these you want to have access to and i was like reading the documentation very closely like hey when i enable access to these models am i going to be charged something for them and so far the answer to that question is no um and then you get playgrounds in here like chat and text and image uh, creation for all those things and uh so yeah it's there it's available to you you can use it to you know if you create custom models you can have access to them here as well and access to your training jobs so you can figure out how to actually fine-tune the model uh and that's where you typically will end up buying that purchase provision throughput for your custom model is basically i think how that's supposed to work but uh Again, be careful how much you're willing to spend on these things. Uh, more models will be coming over time, like I mentioned as well. We'll hope to see the Lambda 2 model, and I'm sure there'll be other Amazon models uh, coming sometime in the future. So this is, it's not bad. It's a great little playground. It reminds me a lot of the chat, G, uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT playground uh, with just more choices. So not too bad. Yeah, I'm curious to see when, you know, some of these pricings become more reasonable for like the smaller businesses to start to play with. I mean, the on-demand pricing for these things is not horrendously terrible. Um, it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. It's not terrible, but uh, like looking at the Claude V2 uh, pricing details, right? You are looking at just uh, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Uh, great, great podcast audio. Uh, I don't know where it's at. I can't find or it per, per tokens. Yeah. So it's per thousand input tokens. So basically you're, you know, for Claude, you're basically paying uh, a penny per thousand input tokens and you're paying three cents for every output, a uh, thousand output tokens. So, you know, how much that actually costs you is sort of, you know, unknown to me at this moment in my AI infancy. Um, so from what I kind of gathered, you know, a conversation that is, a standard conversation with with like ChatGPT, and this is where Jonathan being here would probably put me in my place. <laughs> but my understanding that's probably about twenty five hundred tokens on each of like five to ten back and forth with 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 like ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. So do that math out. I guess it's a standard conversation. Then like five, six, seven, eight, like ten cents. Yeah, it's not horrible. Well, so I, do, I use Bedrock. 
And so if I'm crying next week, because I, so I have a bill, because, you know, Billy takes 24 hours, I'll let you know how much my queries cost me, but I'm hoping it wasn't too outrageously expensive, because I don't think it So is. that'll be our follow-up next week. Yeah, yeah. that'll be my follow-up. How much did it actually cost me to do these things? Ryan at thecloudpod.net, and where I'll give you information of the GoFundMe page we put together yeah. to <laughs> help Justin get out of bankruptcy. Because <laughs> uh, if it's $46,000, I'm really screwed. <laughs> um so uh, in honor of that, uh, the next story, uh, the show notes are brought to you by Claude. Because <laughs> I was like, yes. well, we're going we're to try it out. Uh, and the next show title uh, topic is Amazon MSK introduces managed data delivery from Apache Kafka to your data lake. Uh, and so the key points that Claude summarized for us is Amazon MSK is AWS's fully managed Apache Kafka service and provides key features needed to build real-time data pipelines and streaming applications. There's a new capability called managed delivery for Apache Kafka to AWS lake formation that has been introduced. This allows data produced by on Kafka clusters to be automatically delivered and structured in AWS Lake Formation data lakes. And Lake Formation, of course, is a service that makes it easy to load data from various sources into a data lake stored on S3. Now, with managed delivery data, data from MSK clusters can seamlessly flow into these data lakes, and the delivery is fully managed, so no developers need to build or manage data movement infrastructure. The topic schemas and delivery configurations are defined through the Lake Formation dashboard, and data is delivered in bulk for performance and then transformed, structured in Lake Formation using built-in cataloging and data transformation capabilities. And this enables building data pipelines where data immediately lands in the data lake after streaming through Kafka without having to develop ETL. Lake can be then be queried by analytical tools and managed delivery handles security, delivery failures, monitoring, delivery health, and integrating with MSK clusters. And so in summary, this announcement introduced an integration between AWS MSK and Lake Formation to provide fully managed delivery of streaming data from Kafka. And I no longer have a job. So perfect. <laughs> Hey, someone's still got to, you know, feed the data in and do the prompts and then. Yeah, I'm a, prom- I'm a prompt engineer now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, d- I wouldn't have technically written this quite as uh, yeah. benign, as, you know, quite as, as dense detail and dense as that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, and I did a little bit of uh, flair into it as I read through it just because it's a little clunky to read out loud as written words sometimes can be. But uh, yeah, no, not, not bad. Not too bad. So, I mean, so you set up the initial thing and. It's, you know, you said it's very much like a chat GPT sort of interface where it's prompts. Um, you know, how many back and forth would you say for creating this article that it took you? And what were some examples that, of refining that you were able to do? Yeah. So uh, in this particular case, I was using a chat interface with it. So I was, I, you know, I gave it the URL. I said, you know, can you summarize this article? And it, it gave me like three sentences and, I, and it was very broad, like, here's what this thing is. And I'm like, okay, but I want key points. And so then I told it, you know, hey, can you break that into key key data points about this feature and then it kind of gave me this and so that was all i had to do for this particular one um, i have had in other situations in chat gpt or bard where i've had to be more more specific um, it doesn't have some of the refinement things like bard does one nice thing about bard and our google docs is you know you give it the url and you tell it you want to summarize an article and you want to give it five bullet points you can then it gives you that and then it, you can tell it hey i want you to elaborate on it or i want you to condense it and it, it has kind of some basic parameters you can give it um, that didn't exist in the chat interface. And again, it's just a chat interface, so it's a little harder to do those things. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very comparable to chat GPT and, and what's going on in that area. I don't think it's revolutionary, other than the model was pretty good. So I tried to do the same thing with chat GPT for comparison, and it said, I can't access the internet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, that was a, a strike against it right away. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't get a good comparison from chat GPT on this particular topic. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's a neat, uh, 
neat concept. All right. Well, maybe maybe that'll show up again later in the show. Let's see. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Let's move on to GCP. Uh, you can deliver and secure your internet-facing application in less than an hour using DevSecOps Toolkit. BS. Don't believe it. Anytime security is involved, you know it's going to take at least five or six hours to even just get through the controls. Uh, but Google <laughs> alleges that announcing and preview the DevSecOps Toolkit for global front-end internet-facing apps will help you launch new apps in Google Cloud in less than an hour. This toolkit is part of a recently announced cross-cloud network solution. The toolkit provides an out-of-the-box expert-curated solution to accelerate the delivery of internet-facing applications, and they provided a sample app including the toolkit demonstrating how customers can integrate cloud load balancing, cloud armor, and cloud CDN according to the provided reference architecture, as well as a CI-CD pipeline using their cloud build or third-party tools like Jenkins or GitLab. Uh, but no GitHub, sort of interesting. Uh, you can get started with this uh, to configure your favorite CI-CD pipeline, clone the repository, and enjoy Google Cloud-hosted global front-end internet-facing applications all by cloning the repo. Get to work. Yeah, this is a fun read. Um, it was, it's kind of interesting. Like I like, I like this article because, or or articles like this in general, just because it's it's something you, I hear and I've said myself to cl- many cloud providers. It's like, what I need is is you know an example of of how you want me to use this and you know illustrate for me like what I can do with it so that I can you know then take that and sell it back to the rest of the business or or launch a project to sort of do this. And so this is these, these type of solutions. I love for me to to get my head around it, but then I am very quickly like going through the Terraform repo uh, confronted with the fact of like, this is just sort of normal stuff that, you know, people do all the time is configuring a load balancer. This is, you know, defining your security policy rules. Um, And so it is sort of funny to see that, sort of illustrated out, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for this magic or, I'm, and I'm also waiting for something that, you know, a developer who's not real interested in necessarily, you know, the DevSecOps-ness of the application deployment, you know, why they would want to take this on. And it's, you know, because it's, you know, hundreds of lines of Terraform code where it's not really the, the fun parts of the application, right? It's plumbing. So, it, you know, like it's, it's kind of funny because I, you know, I love this for cloud engineers because it's a great way to get started. It's a great example. You can see how it's done. You can deploy this in your own environment, um, which I think is pretty sweet. But it's also sort of like it's not a smoking gun in a sense of like, like I was by the article, I was really waiting for like a tool or some sort yeah. of like solution. And this is it's it's Terraform code that's defining resources. Which but is that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's for it's a good starting point for hey, I want to go start a project. It's not, you know, and to go from there. It's not really meant for you or Justin. It's meant for, hey, I'm a small business. I want to go launch something secure from the default. How do I just go do this? And like it's an easy button for a small bit for you know, a one or two or three person company. Not for a five thousand, ten thousand, two hundred and fifty person company. Mm-hmm. Like you're not going to have those control, you know, all the extra bells and whistles that you need. Yeah, but it's a really good starting point, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I view it as. Is like, okay, cool. Like maybe this is a pretty decent checklist of like, okay, if I want to go do these things, you know, and I want to build a platform engineering team, these are the types of things I need to make sure I build platforms for. Great, I need a container registry that. Can have scanning and all these other things built in, you know, and 
hey, you want, you know, or, or it's good for a compliance person to be like, have you done all these things? But it's not like an easy button to like, give me code, produce a thing. No, I, I think my issue is when you say a toolkit, I expect a tool, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a reference architecture. And if this was the, you know, Google's giving you a reference architecture that can help you get your web app up and running in an hour with DevSecOps practices, I'd be like, yes, that's great. I love it. That's exactly what I think it is. It's, you know, words matter sometimes. And toolkit is a very specific thing to me that this doesn't quite meet the requirements of, but I do appreciate it. And I do agree with you, Matt. I think it is a, you know, for a lot of companies who are just trying to figure out how to do it, this is a great starting place and they can modify it and, and tweak it to their needs. And it, and it can help them. And, and they probably could get a site up and running within an hour. It's just, you know, don't, don't try to say it's going to be some magic bullet because it's not. I am saying, though, if you've never touched Terraform and you're going to try to launch this, getting Terraform up to that point is going to take more than an hour. I mean, I, yeah. think, cl- I think that's why you, they recommended using uh, Cloud Build because I think Cloud Build will do the Terraform part for you. Uh, but that's not the the hard part. Like the execution of Terraform isn't the trick here. It's understanding where to plug in all the variables and yeah, and that, that part and is a little that, trickier. And that's always sort of the where you know the rubber meets the road on these examples. And you know, it's if you have like a greenfield thing and starting from scratch, this is fantastic. You can deploy it and go nuts. And but if you're trying to adapt it to uh, you know an existing application or your existing site, like that's a challenge because it's it's building a whole network infrastructure. Um, you know, and it's mapping all the the subnets out and and doing a whole bunch of you know setting up of their their new service, which I was another thing that sort of confused me. Um, what's this toolkit have to, anything to do with the new cloud cloud connect? But you know, it's really it's just their the cross cloud network solutions what they're using to set all this up, and so it's it's standalone. It's not really the cross cloud network solution that they're advertising here. It isn't connecting to another cloud really. It's just. Yeah, I was, I was good with that too. Like, is it, were you trying to say that you can put this in front of your existing application and then, you know, load traffic through its cross cloud connector mm-hmm. thing to your on prem and add security? I, yeah, it, it was unclear. And I don't think you could because it creates yeah. a VPC. Yeah. You know, just reading through the, uh, through the getting started guide on the README page, I was mistaken. They do want you to clone the repo and then do a Terraform init, which, they have no linkage to uh, Terraform, how to install Terraform. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you don't know how to do that part, you're screwed. Uh, and then they do uh, they do talk about you know inputs that are required, like project ID. I don't I didn't look enough in the Terraform to see if that's a prompt they give you when you do Terraform plan and Terraform apply. Like default Terraform mode, as long mm-hmm. as there's no default variable. Yeah. So that, you know it's going to ask you every time you run it to put in an ID. And then there's this URL map which uh, you know isn't required and is default false. They don't really explain why it's there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, there's some gaps. I mean, like, yeah, like I said, it's a great starting point for someone with a little bit of cloud expertise who has to do this and probably have done their own version of it. And they're, they're going, they're willing to under, you know, start a new project using this. It's, it's a little bit of a stretch for me to, to think that someone with no previous context or background could set this up in an hour. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. 
Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. Are you guys ready to be confused with me? Let's do it. I'm in. So this next article, they're introducing Google Cloud Firewall Plus with intrusion prevention. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention, at Google Cloud Next, they announced Cloud Next Gen Firewall powered by PAN. And now they're introducing Google Cloud Firewall Plus with intrusion prevention powered by PAN. Wait, that's a separate thing? That's oh, how this appears to me. The article yeah. is not very clear. I, I read it twice because I was like, mm-hmm. what? Uh, so this is, uh, you know, so by embedding the PAN technology into the threat prevention inspection capabilities for TLS and non-TLS traffic, providing transparent line-line protection for your Google Cloud workloads, the Cloud Firewall Plus adds a full layer 7 module supporting hierarchical firewall policies and tag-based firewall rules. Uh, and this is in addition to the essential and the standard Cloud Firewall offering they've always had. And it will be built based on the amount of data processed for threat prevention. And you would think that, you know, they mentioned in the article the Cloud Next-Gen Firewall, but then they don't talk about is this a different offering because in one way I read it, I was like, oh, this is this is actually the next-gen firewall. But then the way I read it and I go through it, I'm like, mm, is it? Because <laughs> it seems different in some key differential ways. I am admitting now that I didn't read this in advance, and so I'm scanning it really quickly. And I do think it is just a continuation of that same Google Next announcement, but it is not very clear. Yeah, I mean, it could be much, much clearer, for sure. Yeah, I read it as actually just... The pan they just reannounced in a slightly different way. So now you're making me second guess what I read earlier. Well, no, I think it is. Um, what it is is they're what they're they're trying to flesh it out a little bit. Like there's the it's not the direct announcement of the features, even though they largely do focus on that in the content. It, they're I think the article is swinging and missing it, trying to get to like how one would use this. But there's you know other than a, a brief mention of like using IAM governed tags and and being able to use hierarchical uh, controls for managing firewall policies. You don't really go into it past that. So I think that I get it, but it's largely a rehash of the, I think the same, same product, which is cool. I like it, but. Is it just like an extra managed layer of pan? Um, I would say that it is a native Google service, which is powered by pan underneath that has some pretty fancy ways that you can manage access to for you can manage rules and grant access and delegate access for others to create rules as well as okay so paul paul alto has a blog post ah. <laughs> oh let's go the other direction <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, today, so this is from August 29th, so this is during Google Next. Today, Apollo Alto Networks is proud to help Google Cloud introduce its scalable cloud native firewall service tier, Cloud Firewall Plus, that comes with intrusion prevention capabilities using Palo Alto's network threat prevention technologies. It is designed to easily deliver our best-in-class security protection with Google Cloud simplicity and scale. This service is currently available in preview. So this, this supports what Ryan just said. But then, 
But then (laughs) the second, the the third paragraph says, we're also delighted to announce our participation in the upcoming Google Cloud Network Service Integration Manager, or NSIM. And this offering, which will be available in preview later this year, offers easy deployment integration with the VM series, virtual next-gen firewall, or NGFW. <laughs> so that's a whole different thing. No, no. <laughs> exactly. So what are they doing? <laughs> so I think I think what we see is that the next gen firewall thing they talked about is really Cloud Firewall Plus it was not clear in Google Cloud Next, uh, and so that is now generally available to you and available if you want to use it. And then there's going to be another new thing coming later on in some thing, which will give you a true next gen firewall. If you want that from Palo Alto. Yeah. If you want packets to get through all these layers, man, good luck. Yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> not, that's not confusing at all. So again, like I'm glad, I'm glad we clarified my confusion to be that we're all wrong, but uh, yes. yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> there's also two tiers of this. If you want more confusion, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah. Well, there's three tiers of cloud firewall. So there's standard mm-hmm. essential and now plus. And up, then eventually yeah. you'll get ultra, I'm sure, when they when they add in something else. No, no, that would only be an Azure mm-hmm. that you get ultra premium. That's true. Ultra premium is only an Azure. Yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about uh, Node.js, which I know even less about. <laughs> <laughs> Announcing that... The segues are really on a point to... Yeah, I know. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Cloud SQL Node.js connector is generally available. The Node.js connector is the easiest way to securely connect your Node.js application to your Cloud SQL database. And... Uh, you know, I would normally not even have talked about this article, but I glanced at the article and I'm looking at the diagram they drew here and they have TCP secure tunnel between the Cloud SQL connector, which you install as an NPM package and Cloud SQL. And I just like to say, thank you, Google, for having secure defaults, because that would mm. not be secure by default in any other cloud. <laughs> no. So that's all we're talking about it. But yeah, if you uh, if you use Node.js, which is not me, and if you do, I will question your life choices. Um, you can now use this new built-in thing, which will make it easier to connect to your Cloud SQL database, and it's a, a recommended option for replacing any of the legacy ways you would have connected to a Cloud SQL database, which is probably like a MySQL driver or a Postgres driver. Now you can just use this instead and get all of the security by default. Nice. So Cloud SQL experts here, do you have to actually enable Cloud SQL secure TCP port, or is it on by default and you just have both options? Because the diagram shows the unused standard port and then the secure proxy port. I mean, who you call an expert? I, mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do believe it is checked by default. You do have to uncheck okay. it, but it, so you can support it if you need to, but you had to make the conscious choice. Got it. It's been a little bit since I've been in that console, but I'm pretty confident in that answer. <laughs> Well, I remember on AWS, you it have was the to, opposite way. There's a checkbox mm-hmm. you had to, it was the yeah, opposite you had to way. check the yeah. box. So that's why I was wondering if it's like, cool, here's a connector, but it's not going to work because you have to enable it. And now I'm actually wondering, I think see, I think Microsoft, you have to enable it, but I got to check the Terraform code we wrote a few weeks ago. The other thing, it's, uh, so this, this connector is now exists for Java, Python, and Go, and now Node. Uh, they say, but if you don't have a language connector, you can use our Cloud SQL auth proxy, which was kind of cool to go read about too. And then you realize, oh, it leverages Kubernetes. <laughs> so yeah, Kubernetes, <laughs> throw Kubernetes at it. It's the new cloud spackle. <laughs> you can't solve it with humans, just throw Kubernetes at your problem. It's great. Yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's the Google way. Speaking of uh, vulnerabilities and GKE, <laughs> introducing the new advanced <laughs> vulnerability insights for GKE, of course, detecting vulnerabilities in open source software requires a holistic approach, and security best practices recommend scanning early and often throughout your development lifecycle to help maintain an effective security posture. 
However, scanning in the CI/CD or registry can miss artifacts and containers deployed to production through other mechanisms. How did you get to production without going through CI/CD? Shame. Likewise, only scanning runtimes can pass over software supply chain vulnerabilities. To address this, Google is launching Advanced Vulnerability Insights for GKE, and the Advanced Vulnerability Insights provide scanning and vulnerability detection in Java, Go, JavaScript, and Python. Uh, it is built into their GKE Security Posture Dashboard and can be enabled on a per-cluster basis. With vulnerability results, can be viewed in the Security Posture Dashboard and in the Concerns tab of OS Concerns, Misconfigurations, and Security Bulletins. During the preview, there is no charge to so use this for free, but they do plan to eventually charge you $0.04 cents per cluster hour for this capability. Which is a lot cheaper than Aqua or Orca or any of the other companies doing this. Mm-hmm. I, and I like how built into the, the native solution this is, right? These types of things. It's... You know, it, it's not turned on by default because there is a cost. I wish it was just sort of part of the thing. They weren't going to charge extra for it. But I understand. Everyone's going to make a buck. But it's a lot of R&D you had to pay for. So. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just give cloud providers a lot of money. And so I just want as much value as I can squeeze out of that that turnip. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like that's, I think, you know, like I building these things in so they're just defaulted and so you get to see them all in one place i think is very informative especially for developers um you know maybe if it's you know like i've seen many a build pipeline that their 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 artifact their code artifact is going through the build process and that's doing a static code analysis and then deployment is just a you know a from public image repository somewhere on the internet and they they load all that up and so none of that image contents are being scanned for security um, and you know, like, I think that's, it's what I think is pretty common to see that. And then also some of the, some of the exploits and vulnerabilities, you can't really, um, tell through static code analysis. It, it has to be sort of an, an openly and active library that's being used as well. And so there's a lot of advantages to having sort of a belt and suspenders approach to CIC security and then runtime security. All right, well, let's talk about Azure, everyone's favorite topic, especially Matt's. Yay. Uh, and they have their uh, <laughs> monthly August cost management update, which is their monthly newsletter trying to save you money. And typically, it has nothing of relevance, but this week they did. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, Matt pointed out an article I missed about Azure Container Apps is now available to you in Azure Savings Plans, which I guess is great. So that's an article here, too. But in the uh, the monthly update... Uh, for those of you who are concerned about exporting your reports from Cost Management Console to a public storage account, not behind a firewall, uh, you can now do that because your, your, uh, your Azure bill must be pretty embarrassing. You want it procured behind a firewall. <laughs> <laughs> the Service Fabric now offers you savings plans. For those who don't know who Service Fabric is, it's a very expensive set of big data ML tools you can pay for. Uh, and so savings plan is probably desperately needed to lower your bill. The Azure Data Manager for Energy and Microsoft Graph Data Connect all of a sudden are now showing up on your bill because they've gone generally available before they were free. So that's a surprise this month. And in Cost Management Labs, you can now view your costs in multiple currencies, lots of other goodies in the labs, including uh, you know several things I hope to graduate soon, sort of like anomaly and reservation utilization alert reports and drill down smart views would be great. Can you get those out of the labs, please? Come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Azure <laughs> Container Apps dedicate plans can save you money as well, and the new performance tiers for ma- on managed luster, and Azure Container Apps, as uh, Matt mentioned, now eligible for Azure Savings Plan for compute. And so, Matt, are you saving money this month with these changes, or are you spending more money because they now charging things you had for free? No, but 
Azure's pretty good about posting, hey, these things are not going to be charged for until, you know, and we'll announce the pricing and terrifies me. That's why I'm afraid to use like hyperscale on Azure because it literally has a caveat like IO is not charged for. We'll tell you in the future what we're going to charge you for. So, um, but I really would like to see the anomaly detection and the reservation utilization alerts set up because that also is something that I constantly go through. You can use it in the lab. It just it could break and not work. So I, I'd like to graduate from lab so I know it will work and I can rely on it because I can't trust anything in the labs. Right. And that's kind of the problem right now. It's going to, I'm like, yeah, there's a 50-50 shot. This is accurate. So instead, I just go look at my reservations directly. But when you have multiple regions and multiple reservations and multiple types for Redis versus SQL versus everything else, it gets more complicated. But in short, no, not saving more money. And I'm not exporting my bill to a public storage account. That just feels like security will yell at me. <laughs> well, I mean, you, uh, that was your only choice before today. So, I mean, before you, you had to have it outside the firewall. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to still get it out of the firewall protected storage account to something that you can actually look at it on, right? So eventually it's got to leave the protected zone. <laughs> so, so it's, 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 and it's just IP address allow list. What could possibly go wrong? Go wrong. All right. Well, if you are a government agency who cares about data sovereignty and your data being stuck in the country of your origin, uh, Microsoft is announcing in preview Microsoft Cloud for sovereignty with plans to GA this capability in December. The solution will enable governments to meet their compliance, security, and policy requirements while harnessing the cloud to deliver value to its citizens. I love that to meet their compliance, security, and policy requirements means the ones they wrote mm-hmm. and are enforcing on us. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Since the inception of the cloud, government customers have faced limitations with digital transformation, particularly because of the need for controls to meet specific national and regional requirements that they wrote. Microsoft <laughs> Cloud for Sovereignty is a grounded and repeatable best practice approach that can be leveraged to assist with complex regulation achievements. The solution features industry-leading data sovereignty and encryption controls, enabling governments to quickly create solutions tailored to help address regional and national requirements. The offering includes sovereign landing zones and policy initiatives now available to you in GitHub, which instantiates guardrails for sovereign cloud environments for customer workloads, enabling customers to leverage best practices for secure and consistent environments, while supporting their efforts to meet evolving local regulations. Support for Italy's ACN and Netherlands bio regulation, which helps customers monitor, guard, and report on compliance in Azure. New transparency logs available to eligible customers provides customers with key operational activities of Microsoft's engineers to support customer service and service liability issues and automated workload templates for Azure Confidential Computing and Azure Lighthouse as examples for building workloads using these technologies for sovereign environments to speed your learning and adoption. Oof, I guess that's nice-ish. I appreciate the, I appreciate that it exists. I don't like it, yes. but I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, it's another example of where they're giving you sort of an example Terraform project, right? Um, but, you know, like it's 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 funny because the real value in this is not actually the, the data sovereignty at all. It's just not monitoring the data sovereignty or like, like it's yeah. sort of one of those things where it's, it's the ability that I now can prove it by pointing at this control and saying, hey, yeah, Mr. Auditor, see right there, uh-huh. that box is checked. You're good to go. Yeah. But, you know, I think the, the reality is a little bit more complex than that because, like it says, the, the regulations are constantly changing. And so when you deploy this, the regulations will be in one state. And, and when you're being audited, the regulations might be in another state. And typically, that's, you know, not too big of a real impact, but it can it can happen where the the classification of data has changed. But 
Well, I, I hopefully you'll get things like you have in, uh, I think it's a shared workload in Google where you have, you know, certain projects you can designate in certain sovereign zones. And like, there's, there's lots of great capabilities this can bring to you. And so I'm, I'm glad to see them getting it. I wish AWS was also following their footsteps on this and I'm sure they will be, but you know, they like to be last in these kind of things. Oh, I don't think so. You don't think so? Amazon went left with GovCloud, and I don't think they're looking back. So the problem with GovCloud is now you need GovCloud in every country that requires a GovCloud. Mm-hmm. And that they're not doing. But Azure has GovCloud too. They do. And then they both, I think, have secure private secret GovCloud <laughs> on top of that. Only special people get access to it. Yeah, I'm sure. I think one of my favorite AWS announcements was the new top secret AWS region is, is live. Yeah, but we can't tell you about it. Yeah, that was pretty great. <laughs> uh, well, because they are supporting Italy's ACN, that would mean that you need to have a cloud region in Italy. And they do now. With the Italy North data center region, it uh, includes availability zones, which offer you additional resiliency for your applications. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Don't care. But uh, the reason why this is here is because uh, while you guys are reading the after show, which for those of you who know, are in the know, there's a really cool after show on a lot of our episodes where we talk about things that we find fun. Uh and there's one coming up and why I made you read that article. I was busy playing with bedrock. And so I decided <laughs> to take this Asia announcement about Italy and decide that I want to go visit it. And so I went to bedrock. And if you scroll down in the show notes, uh, you will find at the bottom of our show notes, uh, a travel itinerary from the different models. <laughs> and so, uh, for Cohere, uh, they told me I should arrive in Milan. Uh, I should check into a hotel in Milan. I should then on day two travel to Verona and on day three, I should visit the new Microsoft Azure region in Italy. Uh, and they say to take a bus or drive to the new Microsoft Azure region in Italy, which is located in Piacenza, which I don't actually know if that's true, but ChatGPT said it was. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that was good. You know, and then I was like, okay, well, let's check out Amazon's model. And they said I should start in Milan and then I should go by train to, uh, from Milan to the new Microsoft Azure region located in Milan, which was sort of weird. Uh, and tour it to see the servers, network infrastructure, and learn about Microsoft's cloud technology, which I don't think I can actually do. But mm. I appreciate that they tried. And then day three, uh, I should take a nice day trip to Lake Como, uh, which would be great. Uh, and then the next one here, the last one is uh, day one. Was uh, This is from uh, Anthropics Claude. Uh, again, they wanted me to go to Milan uh, for day one. And then day two, I could visit the Microsoft for Asia region in Italy. They didn't tell me where it was, though. Although they it must they must think it's in Milan because it's near there, and I do technically think the Milan data center is the first region in in but the new one is in northern Italy. It, anyways, ChatGPT is a little bit yeah. You know, these <laughs> models are always great, and then they also wanted me to go visit Lake Como, and then uh, you know for final experiment of this, I decided that I wanted to see an image of the uh, Italy data center in you know, the Azure region. So I asked the image generation to give me a Azure region in Italy, and it produces beautiful image for you all. Wow. What's the car in there? I don't know, but apparently they've built this data center so sophisticated that even the cars around it are from the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't explain it a lot. Uh, you know, I just told it it build me a data center in Italy for an Azure region. And this is what it gave me. And it built mm-hmm. futuristic cars. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But I can kind of see wine, wine uh, out there in the background of this. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, it's not bad. So uh, that's what I was doing while you guys were doing your homework. Um, <laughs> I thought it was fun. Yeah. Uh, and so there you go. Uh, a little bit more bedrock for you uh, showing up. That's there. cool. Very cool. And uh, I'll include these itineraries in our show notes as well, as well as the photo will be our show note art. So if you've been staring at this uh, photo of a data center, now you know why it's been there all the whole episode. It's <laughs> our chapter. Made up data center. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's it uh, for another fantastic week here in the cloud. All right. Bye, everybody. See you later. 
And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. And for those of you who know, know there's an after show, here we are. <laughs> Surprise, we're back. We're back. Um, so this one is actually good. This is a Google article, uh, and I loved it so much that I sent it to my CISO, who also loved it. Uh, and uh, you know, her comment was, uh, purchasing Mandiant might have been a really great thing for Google, because these type of blog posts are great. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so you know, this is, uh, the article is called, How Leaders Can Reduce Risk by Shutting Down Security Theater. Uh, and so, you know, they basically start their article uh, talking about the pointing out the weaknesses of passwords as the only factor of use, pointing out they're guessable, they're crackable, they're fishable and socially engineered. And only 41% of compromises in 2022 were blamed on weak passwords and solely relying on passwords as a form of identity authentication is an egregious form of security theater, but is no is so commonplace and notoriously bad. And they didn't define security theater as security measures that make people feel more secure without doing anything to actually improve their security. We then go on to uh, talk about another example, uh, you know, third-party security questionnaires, which I am a victim of often. <laughs> uh, they take hours to design, administer, and hours for me to complete, and yet they only amount to digital paperwork being pushed back and forth across emails and spreadsheets with little value and actually no increase in security. And so Google gives you several questions around a litmus test to prove or look for security theater, and those are, can you easily prove the control actually mitigates a relevant threat that you care about? No. Can you easily bypass the control with low effort and a low likelihood of the bypass getting caught? <laughs> That's great. Does the control execution require perfect human performance to work? This one is right on the money. This is my personal favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is the control considered effective if the belief is that the adversary will fail to notice a weakness? Security through obscurity. My favorite. <laughs> do you find yourself recursively justifying the control and saying, we do it because it's a compliance requirement? Ooh, that one stings. That's the one that yeah, yeah. Me. <laughs> yeah, it does. Security theater thrives in the absence of evidence and control should provide value and measurably reduce risk. Uh, similar to passwords, porting legacy security controls and systems instead of building them fresh in the cloud is a great way to get even more security theater, they point out. And lift and shift, in fact, probably increases the risk you face from today's threats because it can lead to increased cost, stagnated user experiences, and time-consuming mandates and reporting. Uh, as well as, in my opinion, they become massive, massive tech debt and are difficult to work with in comparison to cloud native solutions. Okay, so uh, this was fantastic, and I highly recommend you read this. And if your CISO is not easily offended uh, or is a FUD CISO, don't send it to them. <laughs> but if they're not, you definitely should share this <laughs> one with your CISO. It's a great read. And I think uh, you know, one of the things uh, I particularly liked about this is that it did attack compliance as one of the areas that security theater can exist. And so a lot of companies out there can have a lot of security frameworks and a lot of controls, and they check a lot of boxes. And they look really secure on paper, but they don't actually have a lot of security in practice. And so, you know, these are these litmus test questions they gave are really a good indicator of how uh, how good your controls actually are. And I would I recommend you use them every day. Yeah, I really like the you know the litmus test that we went over, and then the practical examples of you know security theater in practice. And you know, they use an example where increasing the length of the password is, and you know, they've patted themselves on the back for for bettering the security of their environment when in reality it doesn't really do anything um and you know i think that that's a really good example 
of Scary Theater. I, I don't know, you know, if all the places where you change your password every three months or whatever it is, you know, when that's been studied and proven that it doesn't actually increase security. Um, you know, it's it's rampant, especially in the you know in security works, and so you know having lots of processes in place and reviews and approvals just leads to rubber stamps and you know like it's it's just everywhere and so i love the examples that they give and i love the litmus test for sort of you know being able to test your current stuff and it's a great perspective on why you know you want to think about security for its effect and value and not just because to say that you did yeah, I was reading an art. Uh, he was like a Reddit forum earlier today, and I was going through it. And it was like we have to rebuild all of our infrastructure because we built it with the EBS volumes not encrypted, and our security team is saying that we have to encrypt all of our drives nowadays um, based on a new client requ- requirements. And you know, the first comment was, which kind of hits home. It's like, okay, so in order to actually exfiltrate the data. From an unencrypted EBS volume, you would need to break into an Amazon data center, steal one hard drive, most likely many hard drives, pull that data out, figure out where that data is in the data center, walk in and out of there with hard drives without anybody noticing, bring it home, and then reconstruct it. It's like the odds of anyone really being able to do that, assuming Amazon probably doesn't have, probably has security guards and 20,000 other controls in there which they have to have to pass all their security requirements feels very low, but it's the security theater of checking the box. Why? Cause security said so. And that's the, that's the question that really hit home. It's like the amount of things I've done just to make the box in windows defender or in AWS config be turned green and be like, look, we're all green here. This is great. And it's like, at the end of the day, you're looking, you're like, yeah, but our EC2 instance has a public IP address that is open to the world on port 22. But don't worry about that. It's not showing up on any anything because it's not because rest- it's restricted to 10 slash 8. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I think you should check that box. But you're right. If you have an existing workload, there's a risk to the business and there's an interruption to your customers. Like, where's the value, you know, in, in that disruption for checking that box? Like, it needs to be evaluated in that context, in that specific context. And not just a checkbox. Like we turned on all the encryption. We said we turned on all the encryption. So you have to redeploy everything. It's kind of a shame that my, uh, Amazon hasn't come up with a way to actually encrypt EBS volumes still <laughs> that weren't weren't created that way. You know, I thought you know, you know initially as a limitation that was fine uh, when they first rolled it out. But I kind of always thought they would come up with a way for you to do it after the fact. Um, you know, at least or wonder if they are. at least maybe you know, maybe pay for the storage twice while you're converting it, but then just take over my instance, I you know my volume ID, so I don't have to do all the work. Well, you probably could with that root volume switch now. Hmm. That makes sense. And I wonder if it's actually encrypted at the hardware layer, like at rest, right? And then so really, what it is 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 at the you know it's the the management of keys, either using the the Amazon provided key or customer management keys, and plumbing that all there is probably the limitation like i mean for your for your friend who's dealing with this issue i almost would recommend they just get kernel level encryption that takes over writing to disk versus redeploying all my infrastructure <laughs> oh no it was just a random 
it was just a random Reddit uh-huh. post about it. And I read the first two articles and, and then we, and we were talking about this and I was like, yeah, this is the day of mm-hmm. security sets up. Yeah. We have to do things. But I think there, I think there's other ways you could have solved that, you know, again, using encryption yeah. at the kernel level, you know, you can still pull the keys from KMS. You can use it to then, you know, do a kernel level, right? I don't remember what the name of the, the library is for that, but there's, there's several open source ones versus destroy everything and <laughs> rebuild yeah. it from scratch. Cause that would be awful. So, yeah, there's transparent encryption at the app layers or you can solve this any number of ways mm-hmm. these days. Yeah. Uh, so we got other cool security things. Um, so our account rep for Google tipped me off to this uh, video series called hacking Google. And it's, it's five YouTube videos uh, that basically start with the Aurora hack, which was a big uh, Chinese state or maybe it was North Korean state sponsored hack that went after Google. And they, they actually got pretty far into Google in the early days. Um, and it kind of really spearheaded their whole security investment. Each of the videos goes over a bunch of things around, uh, you know, red teaming and threat hunting and, you know, how they do things. And it's, it's really well produced, highly interesting. And I think even for a you know non-technical person, I think they would enjoy it. <laughs> uh, and so if you haven't checked out the Hacking Google series on YouTube, uh, there's a link in the show notes now, uh, check that out because it's five videos are like 20 minutes each. Uh, I watched it over a couple of days in the background and, uh, you know, I learned a couple of things through it, you know, about how Google does things uh, or a little bit more in-depth on some concepts that I had ideas of the concept, but now I understand it even better. So uh, I typically don't find those kind of things. So it's good to see. So especially mm-hmm. from a, our Google account rep <laughs> sending me something valuable like that. It's great. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it on uh, security theater, but uh, yeah, I've, Kill security theater. We do it at our airports too and get rid of all that seriously, you know, metal detector and all that stuff. Cause you know how many things slip through those things they never catch? Lots. <laughs> it's scary. Don't yeah. look it up. Yeah. yeah. The shoes thing still bothers me. Yeah. The shoe thing. I was just saying the water bothers me. Just let me bring my water yeah. bottle through. Well, then you, you know, you've been to Israel. Both of you have been to Israel. And so you've, yeah. you've seen the security that they have at their airports. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, that's and that's real security that's not that's not security theater yeah that's an interview no that was like <laughs> having conversations with my wife and i where what why we still have last names different last names and everything else and drilling us down just to really have a conversation <laughs> about it while we have our infant in our arms well, and, and multiple layers of that right and it's all designed to oh, yeah. you know make you break if you're in a bad you know you have bad intentions right they're psychologically trying to get to that with you and and find holes in your story to you know further deter you um so yeah it's it's impressive model and i whenever the new security thing comes out i always see what wait to go see what the israeli security defense minister says about it because <laughs> that's how i know if it's good mm-hmm. or not because if he says it's good then i'm like <laughs> okay i trust it if he says it's garbage he, he you know it's garbage <laughs> all right have a great one you guys all right thanks you everyone bye, bye.